Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you this morning, and let me invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4. It's where we're going to be in just a few minutes, Acts 4. So as we continue through this incredible series through the New Testament book of Acts, if you need a copy of the scriptures, there's a paperback in front of you. That's our gift to you, so I invite you to grab that if you need it. Uh, if you've been away or maybe this is your first time, I certainly want to welcome you this morning, but we are going through a series in this incredible book of Acts, and we're taking a look at the early church that was a group of desperately dependent, fervently loving, sacrificially devoted, radically repentant, boldly proclaiming, and we're going to take a look at that this morning, globally impacting, joy-filled church that was unleashed with the gospel. So again, as we look at the book of Acts and the early church, it's yes, it's our history, but it's also our prayer of what we will be as a church here in 2017. So Acts chapter 4, we're going to take a look at that in just a minute, but let me kind of set up the big idea of where we're going this morning, because it's very important for us as a church here in 2017 to understand this. Now, I want to go back just a few years and tell you of something happened in June of 2014. The entire world watched in horror as a group it called themselves ISIS, or the Islamic State, moved into the nation of Iraq and overran the northern Iraqi city of Mosul. You guys probably remember that in the news, and you still hear a lot about that today. Once the city was under ISIS control, ISIS leadership systematically went through the city door by door, identifying those who claimed to be followers of Jesus. And what they would do at that point is they would mark every home that identified themselves as followers of Jesus with this symbol. Do we have that? That's an Arabic letter that is equivalent to our letter N. And the Islamic State would paint this somewhere on the side of the house to stand for and represent Nazarene or Nazir to identify the followers of Jesus. Weeks later, leadership from the Islamic State would come to each one of the homes marked with this symbol and they would give believers an ultimatum. The ultimatum was this. Number one, you will either convert to Islam, renouncing Jesus Christ completely. Number two, you will pay an exorbitant tax for your faith. Or number three, you must leave immediately. And refusing to do any of those would result in their death. Now what happened we know is over the next few days more than 100,000 Christians had to immediately flee because they were unwilling to renounce Christ and it cost them practically everything. In the days that follow we know of hundreds, even thousands who gave their life because they were unwilling to deny that they were followers of the Nazarene, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even as we stand here this morning, it's incredible for us to fathom that over somewhere it's estimated that up to 100 million believers around the world today live in nations or live in cultures 
where naming the name of Christ could cost them their lives. That's today. Now here's the big idea I want us to wrap our minds around this morning as we begin to jump into Acts chapter 4, and it's one statement, and here it is. Following Jesus Christ never promises to be safe. Whether you live in Iraq or whether you live in comfortable United States of America, and the idea for us, if we were real honest, I I just had this kind of overwhelming reality this week as I was studying Acts chapter 4. Hope you've been reading through it as well, maybe talking through it in your life group. But as you walk through it, you study Acts 4 that we're going to look at, it is very difficult for us in comfortable East Tennessee, the Western world, that in many ways has escaped lethal persecution to get our minds around the reality that following Jesus Christ might cost us something. It is very difficult for us in America that the idea of persecution is something to be avoided at all costs. The idea that following Jesus would cost me something, our thought is, hold on. We have laws against that here, you know. I mean, we have religious freedom. The idea, and we, and we build ourselves with that conditioning, and here's what we train ourselves to think. We are surprised when following Jesus costs us anything. And often, our first question when challenged, or our first question when maybe called by Jesus to do something somewhat risky, our first question is somewhat like this. Is it safe? Or what's it going to cost me? It's really difficult for us to even begin to launch into Acts chapter 4 until we realize when you follow 2,000 years of church history, when you take the clear words of our Lord Jesus Christ that I'm going to read you in just a few minutes, here's the reality. Following Jesus Christ never promises to be safe. Ever. Jesus, in fact, said something like this, and I've got to think that maybe the early church had these words ringing in their ears, or at least the apostles did. They remember Jesus saying from Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those, (laughs) blessed, blessed, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this, if this is not countercultural, I I would dare say I don't even believe this practically. I I quote it, I've even got this verse memorized. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are you when men insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Would we be really honest and say in this room we even believe that? That's a blessing. That I would be so bold and so full of the person of Jesus Christ that I would push against the culture in a way that someone might speak back to me or insult me or it might even cost me something. I am so devoted, I am so overwhelmed with the person of Christ, someone might speak back against me. Jesus says if that happens, you're blessed. But we don't believe that way. We sure don't believe what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul says a radical statement. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
we might as well be reading a foreign language in many ways. And man, it really stretches the envelope if we try to get our minds around what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. And by the way, this is throughout the New Testament. For to you, he says, to a group of believers, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him. The word granted is a grace gift. Salvation is a grace gift. It's not only been granted that you would believe, watch this, but that you would also suffer for his sake. That we would experience any degree of loss or suffering or persecution or insult or being pushed on the fringe or maybe not our perfect safe environment for the cause of Christ, Paul says, is a gift. Why? So I think we need to get our minds around that this morning a little bit before we even attempt. And, and there's a lot to cover in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to try to honor our time as best I can this morning. Before we launch into Acts chapter 4, let me just remind you, following Jesus Christ never promises to be safe. The early church, as we've been following in Acts for three chapters now, has been exploding with growth. There is a legitimate movement going on in the city of Jerusalem. The church has now grown from 120 to 31, over 3,000, and we know it's actually more than that. There's been this explosive growth, and the disciples have been carrying this message just like Jesus told them. Go, you are my witnesses. You tell, you tell, you tell. Yes, I was crucified. Yes, I'm alive. Yes, I've risen from the dead. Yes, I am the Messiah. You go tell, tell, tell. And then you get into chapter 3. Daniel led us to this just a few weeks ago. Peter and John go into the temple area. They heal a lame man who couldn't walk from birth. They're right in the temple area. All the people gather around and they say, oh, by the way, the power that we did this is not our own. It's the power of Jesus Christ risen from the dead that, oh, by the way, you nailed to a cross. And things start to get out of hand from the perspective of the religious leaders and they've got to do something about this movement. Acts chapter 3, the end, going into Acts chapter 4 as you read it, is a pivot point and a turning point in the history of the church. There is now a specific season of persecution that the followers of Christ are entering into. Here's what that means. If you're going to follow Christ, it will cost you something. And that's the season they're entering into. Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read different passages, try to pull out some application for us. And hopefully this is an extremely challenging passage for us here the church in 2017. Because I'll just be honest about myself, I very easily bow down to the idol of safety and the idol of comfort. And it is impossible to read through the book of Acts, your forefathers of the early church and not be challenged to consider am I bowing down at the idol of safety and comfort that's hindering me from selling out and obeying King Jesus take a look at that say whoo that's heavy Pastor Mike Acts chapter 4 there's a lot here verse 1 
So as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John. You remember from Acts 3, there's a crowd that's gathered around them after they've healed this fella. They've preached the gospel. There's a crowd that's gathered around them. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Now verse 2 is one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. Being greatly disturbed. <laughs> Translation, they are fire hot because now they thought they had gotten rid of Jesus. They had, this is the group that led to his crucifixion. Now his followers are causing problems. This Jesus guy just won't go away. And they are greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people, verse 2, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, verse 3. And they laid hands on them. That's not a high five, that's not a fist bump, that's not an attaboy, that's a colloquialism to say they physically took them by force and they placed them in jail or it was until the next day because it was late in the evening, verse 4. But, even in the midst of intense persecution, this is a glorious passage, verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The church is exploding. From the perspective of the religious elite, it is out of hand. They won't stop talking about this Jesus. And they've got to do something about it. So the early church and the disciples are getting ready to experience the reality that following Jesus never promises to be saved. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. So we go to the next day. They gather the religious elite in Jerusalem, if you will, a group called the Sanhedrin. They were equivalent to what you would call the Jewish Supreme Court, in a sense, 70 of them. They gather there. It was very similar to the group that had gathered about two months earlier and put Jesus on trial. Similar group. So here they are. They've gathered this group together. Annas is there, the high priest. Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of priestly descent. So the religious uppity ups are there. And let me just say, a very intimidating group. A group that held sway. A group that held power. A group that held a lot of sway with the Roman government. So Peter and John are not just standing before this little powerless tribunal. They're standing before a very powerful group. The Bible goes on, verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, Peter and John, they began to inquire. So it's like a mock trial, if you will. And they, they give them just a loaded question in verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? <laughs> Probably not the best question to ask to Peter and John because they're going to tell you. What, what power are you doing these things, Peter? What name are you doing these things? Now, it's a, a moment of decision for Peter and John. Verse 8. Man, I wish time allowed me, but the irony here is intense because they're looking at Peter and they're saying, Peter, by what name and what power are you doing this? Back up two months the same Peter stood in probably the same courtyard of the house of Caiaphas. And a little girl said to him, you're not a follower of Jesus, are you? And we know how that turned out. Peter denied he even knows him. Now two months later, 
post-resurrection, filled with the Spirit, the same Peter, by a much more intimidating group. The group says, hey, by what power, what name are you doing this? Verse 8, I love it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the elders of the people, if we are, verse 9, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, in other words, are we on trial for healing a sick man? Is that a crime? Well, that's not why they were on trial. Verse 10, he says, If that's why we're on trial, though, let it be known to all of you and to all the people. Watch this. That by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, and here's Peter's usual response, whom you crucified. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you today in good health unashamedly, not, absolutely counting the cost, but with great boldness, Peter says, listen, you want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing? I'm doing it in the name of Jesus the Nazarene. By the way, the one you crucified. By the way, the one God raised from the dead. Now, as we walk down this passage, I'm going to give you three quick realities about persecution. And again, I know this is going to be a lot here for you. There's a ton in this chapter, and I pray that you study and read through and pray through this chapter on your own. Three quick things that we see here. Number one, based on what Peter just says, faithful followers can expect opposition when our motive is the name of Jesus. In other words, Peter, is, Peter and John have done a good thing. They've done a humanitarian act, if you will. They have healed a lame man. As a church, I want to say we are active and we want to pursue how to be active in our city and we want to serve our city and we want to meet pressing needs and we want to make a difference. But let me tell you, when trouble for us comes, when we say the reason we are doing what we're doing, yes, we want to meet needs, but the ultimate reason we're doing what we're doing is the name of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate end is that people know Him. We have a call to be compassionate, and we will be compassionate. But as disciples of Christ, it is very easy to walk side by side, arm in arm, with non-believers and meet needs. There's nothing wrong with that, and we'll do that. But when opposition comes, expect it when you say, wait a minute, the reason I'm doing this and the end game is because Jesus is great. He's the only answer. It is because of the name of Christ. That's when you'll get the strange looks. That's when you'll get pushed to the edge. And that's when those will want you to just be quiet. And that's what happened to Peter and John. Now, again, we talk about that for a long time. Let me press on. Verse 11. Peter continues and he's, he says, He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you. I mean, he's not letting up on these guys. Now he's pulling out of the Old Testament, he's quoting Old Testament, because all of a sudden, by the way, after the resurrection, the whole Old Testament makes sense to Peter. Oh, it's, it's all about Christ. I get it. He says, verse 11, He, Jesus, the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone, verse 12, one of the greatest verses in your New Testament. Here he goes, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Bam! Peter's not mixing words. Peter's not unclear. 
Peter is so convinced from the scripture. Peter is so overwhelmed by who Jesus Christ is. Peter's not even worried about what this is going to cost him. He is very clear and he says this. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. Here's number two for you. Principle number two. Faithful followers can expect opposition when our message is Jesus alone saved. You guys do understand in our culture today, even in America, you might get by with using the word God and be okay. But when you begin to invoke the name of Jesus Christ, and you say, I don't know if that's quite the case in East Tennessee yet. You travel anywhere outside the Bible Belt, and even more so here and here, or here where we live now. And understand, if you are going to hold to the reality of what the Bible clearly teaches from Genesis to Revelation, Peter summarizes it here, that there is salvation in no one else but King Jesus alone. Therefore, watch this, therefore every other ism and asm and spasm and religion and cult and whatever you want to call it is a lie. And you hold that out in love because it is not love to give a sugar pill to a cancer patient and say well we don't want to we don't want to offend we don't want to tell them they have cancer because it might offend and it might hurt and in the name of love we're going to do that Peter says listen the most loving thing I can do to you is point you to the only savior and his name is Jesus Christ you do understand brothers and sisters to hold out Jesus and Jesus alone will get you labeled intolerant, offensive, narrow, you're using hate speech. You gotta know from scripture, any other message other than Jesus and Jesus alone is absolutely not love. It is hate. Because we know the truth is Jesus and Jesus alone. Peter knew that. Peter was willing to die for that. And by the way, years after this, Peter did die for that, hung upside down on a cross, according to church tradition. So Peter continues on, and now the leaders there, they're kind of in a pickle. They don't really know what to do with John and Peter. I mean, these guys are so bold. It says, verse 13, now they observe the confidence of Peter and John, the leaders, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. That's a technical term to mean they had not been trained in the rabbinical schools. They're not even authorized to preach like they're preaching. Who do these men think they are? And they were amazed. One of the great statements in the book of Acts, into verse 13, and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Maybe somebody in the group recognized Peter. Maybe somebody in the group recognized John and said, wait a minute, I, I, I've seen those guys before. I think those guys walked with Jesus. I think those guys walked with Jesus. Jump on down to verse 15 for sake of time. So the leaders here, they don't really know what to do with John and Peter. Verse 15 says, but when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. Now, this is the conversation within the council. I love this. Saying, what are we going to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Translation, you got a man standing right there who couldn't walk from birth. He's now walking with no problem whatsoever. Something has happened. That was not the end. The end was to validate the message of Christ that they're sharing. 
and they don't know what to do. They got this miracle, they got these men, they got this message. We don't know what to do. Verse 17. But so they say, but so that it will not spread any further, we got to do something. We're threatened. They're taking away our power. They're taking away our authority. So that it will not spread any further, th- further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Verse 18. And when they had summoned them, Peter and John, you guys come on back in here. Peter and John, come on back in here. They commanded them. That's a very strong word in the original language. It's not a suggestion. It is a mandate from a ruling body that says, We are commanding you that you do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Stop right there. So here's your third Reality when it comes to persecution or opposition as a follower of Jesus. Here it is. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. Number three, faithful followers who boldly share the love of Jesus will experience moments of decision. What are you going to do, Peter? What are you going to do, John? I mean, the rank and file of that day, the same group that ultimately led to the Crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans, these angry leaders, these men that many people look up to and respect, have just told you never to speak in the name of Jesus Christ again. What are you going to do, Peter? What are you going to do, John? What happens when you are the lone voice of truth? What happens when you continue to hold out your faith and you are boldly speaking the gospel as we are trying to pursue as a church? What happens when you, when your friends maybe begin to push you to the fringe or they no longer call you or they leave you out or you're passed over for that job or it costs you something to name the name of Jesus Christ? What are you going to do? It's a reality from Scripture that faithful followers of Jesus who boldly share the love of Christ, and we talk about that all the time here, but you've got to understand, if we're doing that, and we're boldly doing that, and we're pressing against the culture, if you will, and all the love that we can have for those around us, you've got to understand, we are going to come to moments of decision. You're going to fold? You're going to bow down at the altar of safety? Are you going to claim your religious rights? What are you going to do, Peter? What are you going to do, John? Verse 19. One of the great passages again. Chapter 4 is just incredible. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, (laughs) Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than God, you be the judge. He brilliantly puts it back on them and says, You tell us. What's better, obey you or obey God? What is better? And then he makes a great statement, verse 20. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Isn't that great? 
Man, would it be said of the people of Tri-Cities Baptist Church, man, they are a loving people, they are a serving people, they are a bold people, and man, if you're around any of those folks, they can't stop talking about this message and this person of Jesus who has transformed their lives. They cannot stop speaking what they've seen and heard. Irony is today, often we have to we have to force, in a sense, believers to speak. Here, the pressure is, would you stop speaking? <laughs> they cannot stop speaking what they had seen and heard. Peter's not fulfilling a religious obligation. He's not carrying out a religious duty. He's not even doing what his pastor told him to do on Sunday because it's the right thing to do. Peter is overwhelmed by the spirit of Jesus. He's overwhelmed by the resurrection of Christ. He's overwhelmed by the person of Christ, Christ alive in him. And at the end of the day, Peter cannot stop speaking what he's seen and heard. Glory. And for sake of time, I'm going to give you something really, really quick here. And it's in these passages. Let, let me ask this question. Okay, how was Peter able to stand firm in the face of opposition? And again, this could be a whole message in itself. I'm going to give you four or five things really quick. So you listen fast and you can write these down. Number one, he was able to stand first firm in the face of opposition because his faith was real. Persecution, opposition reveals what's genuine and roots out what is fake. That's why, that's why persecution in the life of the church, opposition in the life of the church historically has never stifled the church. It has purified the church. Peter himself in 1 Peter 1, chapter, chapter 1 verse 6, very quickly says this, Put that up here. So truly be glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure these many trials for the little house. These trials, Peter says, will show that your faith is genuine, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter wrote this many years after this here, who had experienced much persecution, and he knows in the lives of true Jesus followers, like silver is refined in the fire, or gold is refined in the fire, when we are tested, when we're pressured, when we experience persecution, it reveals what's truly there. Maybe the church in America is entering a season like that. And by the way, it really doesn't matter who's in the White House. God may be choosing to purify and purge his church. To him be the glory because what's real becomes evident. That's number one. Number two, very quick. How was Peter able to stand firm? Number one, his faith was real. Number two, he had spent time with Jesus. 4.13, we just read that. They also recognized him as one who had been with Jesus. Listen, if you are not daily spending time in the word of God and in the face of Jesus and in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and walking in the spirit, I can just tell you when opposition comes, when you're at that moment to speak, when you are to be the light, you will fold because you have no strength and you have no courage. It's not a duty you're not doing it out of some rote religious activity. You're doing it because Jesus is so dear to you and he is so glorious to you and he's the greatest thing in your life. You cannot stop speaking what you know to be true. 
Peter and the disciples were known as men who had spent time with Jesus. Thirdly, Peter was fully convinced. Acts 4, 11, and 12, he goes into this Old Testament passage. He's quoting the Old Testament. Peter has spent time with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus post-resurrection. Acts says that for 40 days, Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. He walked through the Old Testament. And I imagine he took the entire Old Testament and said, look, it's all about me. And Peter was like, oh, I get it now. In other words, from the scripture, when faced with opposition, when faced with difficulty, when faced with persecution, whatever it is, if we are not fully convinced in the reality of what we stand on, we'll fold. Peter was fully convinced there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. And Peter was fully convinced of the truth. Number four, very quickly, Peter feared God more than he feared man. He said, verse 19, you tell me, is it better to give heed to you or give heed to God? Fifthly, Peter was filled with the spirit of Jesus himself. Peter was not more godly. Peter was not more pious. Peter was a weak, frail man who backed down to a little servant girl two months earlier. But now, two months later, the spirit of Jesus himself indwells, abides in, and is controlling Peter. And Peter never has to act in his own strength or his own power. And what's this child of God? Neither do you. Ever. You're never left to your own resources. You're never left to your best ability. You're never even left to your own courage. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ in you and in his church. Well, let me wrap it up here as best I can. So very quickly, last question. Okay, how do we respond when facing opposition and persecution? Verse 23, what did Peter and John do? A couple, couple verses and we'll finish and we'll go into the time, a time of the Lord's Supper together. Verse 23. When they had been released, they went, their own, they went their own, I'm sorry, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, there's three glorious applications here and I'm going to give you and we're going to close. First one is out of verse 23. How do we respond when we face opposition, when we face persecution, whatever level it is in our lives? The first thing the disciples did here in verse 23 is this. Number one, we run to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the literal translation of verse 23 is this. When they went to their own Meaning there was this sense in the early church, and this is why they had the community that they had. And this is why they had the devotion that they had. One of the reasons, when they were out in society, they realized they were aliens. They were strangers. They were different. They were going to be pushed to the fringe. They needed the strength and the encouragement and the empowering of the body of Christ. When the church gathered, they were there, and they were there on time. When the church was assembled, they were there. They didn't have somebody to tell them, man, you ought to go to life group. They said, I've got to go to my own. Because in the world, I will not make it. I cannot stop speaking what I've seen and heard. But when I'm in the world, the pressure is too great. And they ran to their church family, the body of Christ. It might be necessary in America that the church experiences a good dose of persecution. And then they will run to one another and will experience true biblical unity like they show in Acts chapter 2. 
they ran to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, I'll keep on reading very quickly. Verse 24. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God in one accord and said, Oh Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the other people. Watch this. Here's the second point. They're recounting all that's going, gone on. A lot of persecution. I mean, there's been Herod. There's been Pontius Pilate. There's been all these religious leaders. Watch this. Verse 27 and 28. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Don't miss this. In fact, our team can come on up and just to begin to play softly for a minute before we prepare for the Lord's Supper. But I want you to hear this. Listen to this. Face persecution. Not cost them their lives. And Peter and the disciples there, they say this. Everything we have experienced, watch, is what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Number two, we rest in the sovereignty of God. You'd face, you face some opposition. And you face some persecution. And you face some loss for the name of Christ, the sovereignty of God is no longer a cold doctrinal position for you. It is a reality that you hold on to. Watch this. That whatever you endure, whatever you go through, is not an alternate of God's plan. Watch this. It is God's plan. Peter and John are able to say, this is part of God's sovereign plan. This is part of what God is doing. Persecution of the church is a means by which God carries out and completes the great commission to take the gospel to all the nations. It is part of his plan. And they embrace the sovereignty of their God. They embrace the fellowship of one another. The first question they asked was not, is it safe? The first question they asked was not, what's it going to cost me? God, this is part of your plan. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Listen, there's a church that desires very seriously to carry out what I think is the mandate for the people of God and to take the gospel to places where Jesus has never been named or people have never even heard the name of Christ. 1.7 billion in the world today. Watch this. And most of them live in parts of the world where it's not safe. Therefore, when we send people out and if we're going to play our part in accomplishing the Great Commission, it might mean sending our sons and our daughters and even ourselves into places where it's not safe. And when we line up people like we did just a few minutes ago in front of our church, we're not praying, oh Lord, I hope they have good weather and I hope the food's not too bad. God, <laughs> whatever comes of them is your sovereign plan. For the glory of King Jesus, but we will not stop speaking what we've seen and heard to the ends of the earth. What's this? No matter what it costs us. That's the book of Acts. Church, let us be that kind of church. Jim Elliot said, oh, that God would make us dangerous. 
That was a man who gave his life for the gospel of the Alca Indians in Ecuador. Last point, we're done. End of the chapter, and you can read it on your own. Their prayer wasn't, God, keep us safe. God, get us out of this mess. You know what their prayer was? God, make us bold. God, make us bold. How do we face persecution? Third one, and we're finished. We plead to God in community with others to grant us more and more and more boldness for his name's sake because we're not going to stop speaking what we've seen and heard. Would you bow your head with me this morning? I'm going to pray for us. Pastor Jeff's going to come and lead us. We're going to prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And the Lord's Supper is a time for you to evaluate your heart. And it might be this morning some of you need to repent that you're worshiping at the God of safety and the God of comfort. And the result is walking in disobedience with your God. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and I pray, Lord, that we will be unable to stop speaking what we've seen and heard. God, I pray the ripple effects would be in this community. I pray the ripple effects would be in this country. And God, to the ends of the earth, for King Jesus' sake. We trust that whatever comes our way is part of your plan. And God, give us boldness. God, let our soul be overwhelmed with the greatness and the glory of King Jesus. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Pastor Jeff.